0: Okay, it's time to get a little bit real. Real and sexy. No, just real, but real in an 80s heartthrob kind of way. Look, last week we told you about my new web series Conspiracism and told you... No, bade you... ...to go watch it. Which apparently you didn't. We know how many of you listen to this podcast. We've got the stats. Well, we know roughly the lower bound of those of you who listen to it every week if we just go by the Podbean stats. There's probably even more of you who subscribe via iTunes or any number of podcast aggregating services. And we like our ignorance that way. It means we don't worry too much about how we come across. Anyway, we know that not a lot of you went and watched my new YouTube series, Conspiracism. There was a link in the description and everything. Now, most of you probably aren't aware that contractually you were obliged to watch that first episode. You see, you signed a contract when you started listening to this podcast. Now, you aren't aware of that, in fact, because we used mind-control lasers to wipe your memory. Lasers. They can do anything. Also, post of ignorance of a contract doesn't get you out of having to fulfill your legal requirements. Don't blame us. Blame the legal system. So... You signed a contract, and that contract requires you, amongst a lot of other things Some of them thought to be physically impossible To watch or listen to anything we tell you to uh, Luckily you have another week to uphold part of the contract before end begins The process And remember, we do love you We're not saying that because clause 4 of the contract requires us to We mean it But enough legal matters for the time being this week we're going back to Communist Russia, which can mean only one thing. More Yakov Smirnov jokes! In Soviet Russia, podcast lists. I was going to say more Russian names for you to try to pronounce. Well, oh, that's almost as good. Better than the alternative, even. Me trying to pronounce them. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Hello and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. It's a spring evening, I guess, here in Auckland, New Zealand. Spring technically has sprung. Mm, it has. Uh, where I uh, am Josh Edison, and sitting directly next to me is Dr. M.R. Denton. This is true. I will not refute any of these statements. To do so would be a lie, and I would never lie... If I was being nominated to the Supreme Court, I would not say a single lie in front of my peers or a Judiciary Committee. I'm that kind of person, and I do enjoy beer. Mm. I don't enjoy beer. I don't like it Well, you right? can't become a Supreme Court Justice. Fine, I won't become a Supreme Court Justice. I really dislike beer. I, I It's a horrible taste. And that's Sorry. the end of the podcast, mm. guy's the conspiracy. It's been a wonderful run. We almost got to 200 episodes, but... Irreconcilable differences. Uh, we're going to cut the lamps in half, uh, divide up the children, subdivide all of the properties, and build a tunnel to the sun. Mm. But before we do that, um, we're going to talk about rum goings on in Soviet Russia for the second week in a row. It's about saying this is a bit of a Russian theme podcast mm. at the moment. But there's no collusion. There's no collusion with Russia. No. To put Russia first and forefront. That almost works in mm. this podcast. No collusion, no collusion. Yeah. Robert Mueller, don't look at us. And we're going back to the sort of 50s and 60s anyway, when, when good old Putin would have been knee-high to a grasshopper. And place. also fashion was very fashionable. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so, we we got the requisite publicising of your new video series out of the way in the intro, so we probably don't need to do it again. No. But, but, but watch the new web series. It is good. Otherwise, I will be coming with the secateurs. Mm. The process cannot be stopped. Mm. In fact, for some of you, it has already started. So with that in mind, uh, shall we get on to the main topic of the episode? Indeed. Let's go into space. Allegedly. It's time for Russians in Space! Okay. How's yep. that for an intro? That was a pretty good one. Yep, yep. Um, or not... As the case may be. Um, Now, this is a story which I actually read about in the 14 Times many, many moons ago. It's been around a while. So, there is a claim that before Yuri Gagarin made his famous launch into space, and then his famous return from space to the Earth, that Russia had sent up into the upper atmosphere and also the bounds of outer space, cosmonauts who basically went on one-way missions, or cosmonauts who thought they were going on two-way missions, but never came home. And this was then covered up by the Soviet Union Space Agency, so that people wouldn't be aware of just how treacherous or dangerous the Soviet space program actually was. Now, the article that was in the Fortean Times basically presented this as a case of Russia is quite definitely covering up cosmonauts they've never admitted to. But we're going to talk about that mm-hmm. and see whether whether the Fortian Times was right or whether the Fortian Times was wrong. Yes. Um, I think this was prompted by a more recent article called The Enduring Myth of Phantom Cosmonauts from um, Discover Magazine. Um, which I have to say it's it's worth a read, but it's more just sort of an overview of the topic, and I found it a little bit frustratingly low on details when they they're very much against the idea that this happened um but the article does tend to have a lot of a lot of people think this happened, but it didn't moving on um so we'll we'll try and look you may at think it it actually. So. actually it's Y. Mm. so nevertheless there is there is a claim the claim is that Yuri Gagarin was only the first official person into space. In fact, he didn't orbit, didn't he? He orbited the Earth and then came back down. Um, Yep, he had a good look around the place Mm -hmm. and went, yep, that's definitely my home. Which was a massive coup for Russia at the time, because of course, remember this takes place in the context of the space race. World War II was over, the Cold War was in full swing, um, and the space race between America and the USSR became this sort of proxy war, really. It was a... It was a propaganda war, um, who could be the first to essentially land first get into space and then land people on the moon. So. I also want to point out that space race is the worst episode of Stargate s g one is it I mean, it's uh, really, really terrible um, we'll speak no more of it. No, we should talk about the space race, but it's not that, right, that yes, episode no, certainly certainly so while we know that um, America was eventually victorious, they were the the first people to and, and indeed only uh nation to land human beings. Allegedly. Open, allegedly. Uh Nazis on the move. For a lot of the space race, Russia seemed to be in front. Um if you've if you've ever read uh The Right Stuff, Tom wolf's The Right Stuff, which was made into a film as well, which sort of um chronicles the space race and the the astronauts who took part, there's a lot of a lot of talk of, of sort of the inscrutability of the Russian space program. Um we knew so little about it. All all, all that they would ever publicise internationally was after the fact, or, or or just just before the fact. It would be we are launching a rocket right now. Um, go and have a look at how clever we are. Yeah, which um, is quite different from the way that the Yanks were yeah. doing things, which they would publicize their launches months in advance, schedule things. Whilst Russia would go, oh, we've got a rocket on the pad, up. let's send it up now. Or at least that's the way that the Soviet Union kind of presented their space Mm. race. Everything was done under utmost secrecy, to the point that we know there were launches that weren't successful but what they would do to cover up these unsuccessful launches was basically rename the mm. launch. So you'd go, "Well, that was a uh, that was not our first attempt. That was attempt utmost. Uh, the first attempt is actually tomorrow. Yes, mm. we'll have our successful first attempt tomorrow. Or that will be a different name tomorrow, and our first attempt will be in three days' time." Yes, yes, the 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 uh, failed missions had a different designation, or were given a different designation from the successful ones. And in fact, even, um, I I didn't write it down, the the term for the person in charge of their space program was like the master engineer or master something or other. There was was, no person was ever named. It wasn't even known if it was a single person or a group of people. Um, There would just be these these proclamations of the, 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 the genius thing that their master engineer has managed to achieve this time. And it it was proven quite frustrating for the Americans, I think, because their their failures were public. The, their struggles, the massive work they were doing, was all very public. And then at every turn, Russia would just turn around and say, "Oh yeah, we've done that. Oh look, how we beat you to it. There goes our rocket." And and you wouldn't hear any of the background. So with 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 that background to things, and and indeed knowing how how Russia did operate at the time, all of all of. Stalin's notorious disappearings and and historical erasures, people being airbrushed out of photographs and so on. Um, It's certainly not inconceivable that Russia might have might have covered up covered things up and made certain uh, embarrassing, potentially embarrassing incidents just sort of disappear. Especially since the Russian space program wasn't as conscious of health and safety. As the American no. space program was there were a lot of safeguards built into the NASA launches and it's fair to say there weren't as many safeguards for the Soviet mm-hmm. Cosmodrome Cosmonaut system. Yes so I mean we do know that, that there were accidents in the Russian program we do know that there were deaths due to these accidents uh, and that these were covered up at the time generally and didn't come out until some time later. Um, The question is, though, were there any human beings sent into space before Yuri Gagarin who died in the attempt and who were covered up? And that's where things get a bit more murky. Yes, because there are people who claim to have evidence about Mm. this. And this is the source of the 14th Times article I read many moons ago, which were basically about Italian radio operators who were... Detecting what they thought were launches from Soviet Russia, where they had radio signals which appeared to be receding or moving away from them, and tones that they associated with those signals to be life support systems. So as the signals got further away, the tones became weaker, and then eventually the tone the tones, the tones would completely disappear, and they took this to be evidence that these were launches of cosmonauts into space in basically one-way missions. Hmm. Um, Yes, this was the the Judica Codiglia brothers, um, Italian Italian amateur radio operators. I'm, I'm Almost certain we've mentioned this idea in the past on a previous episode that these... Um, because eventually they, it was more than just um, sort of signals of life support systems. Supposedly um, they were picking up actual audio, um, radio transmissions from the cosmonauts themselves and supposedly captured numerous instances of people um, either either talking about how they were in trouble and then things being suddenly cut off or indeed sort of screaming or or um, uh, shouting about how everything's going horribly wrong, oh my God, I'm going to die, that sort of thing. Um, and I, I, are we, we may be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I think this, this, whether or not, these were sort of the, I'm trying to think of a more appropriate term than money shot, but I can't right at the moment, of uh, when it comes to... Um, uh, evidence of, of destroy of, of um, dead, covered up cosmonauts, but there, there were other fishier, but, but less uh, drastic things that happened beforehand Tell me about the fishy, non-drastic things, Joshua. Right, oh, well, I mean, first of all, um, there were t- some of the information that was made public uh, to our outside of Russia included uh, lists of cosmonauts and, and photographs of cosmonauts Which at times didn't sync up with what with, with the actual known numbers of cosmonauts There were instances of where we knew there were these four cosmonauts and yet photographs only ever showed three of them So where was the fourth one? Um, there are incidences like that which, which made people suspicious um, But when it comes to your phantom cosmonauts there are um there are some instances which were known to be hoaxes, um, but they're, they're less interesting to talk about. There were, um, very, in some cases, very specific claims. Uh, the one that comes uh, up a bit is this uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vladimir Ilyushin. Um, supposedly, he went into space before Gagarin, um, and the mission went horribly wrong. Um, some people have claimed there was, a, a at the time, a British communist newspaper, The Daily Worker, um, they I'm reported for a communist mm. paper. They reported that there'd been some sort of technical mishap which had left Evolution deranged, quote unquote. Um and so he was he so he survived but was disappeared because um he was no longer in, in any sort of a state to be uh providing any sort of publicity. They couldn't very well wheel him in front of the cameras. Um, Which does make me think of that Simpsons episode. Are you going to tell them about the monkeys that we're done mm. in space? No, I don't think we'll be doing that now. Yes, there we go. Maybe he actually turned into a hyper-intelligent monkey. The Simpsons does seem to reference mm. a lot of things that happen in the guise of comedy. Although They're, they're like the Dan Brown of animation. Mm. Now that I think of it, a hyper-intelligent monkey would, would kind of be a fitting description for a human being anyway, so... Maybe there's more yeah, no truth to that. But anyway, um, other, other people claimed that his reentry went wrong and he landed in China, um, where he was held for over a year before they um, sent him back. The whole thing, apparently, when you look into the facts, doesn't add up. For one thing, and this will be a theme, I think, that comes up a little bit, Russia and China, though they were both communist states, they weren't super buddy-buddy at the time. The relations were a little bit tense between them. Um, so had China actually captured a Russian cosmonaut, um, after, after re-entry, that, that, that would have been a propaganda win for them. They would have made a big deal about that. Um, and this is something we've seen, for instance, when we've talked about moon landing hoaxes in the past. One of the main um, things against those theories are just that Russia would have known, and if Russia knew, they would not have kept quiet about it. Yes, people seem to kind of underestimate the infiltration of foreign governments. The superpowers in the Cold War actually engaged them. So if you were aware there'd been a whole bunch of failed attempts to get into space and you were, say, an American operative sending information back to your handlers in the U.S., you probably would want to use that information to go, well, look, Russia's space program is nowhere near as successful as ours because, look, we get up the first time. It took them seventeen times to get up. Who were indeed Miss Higgins. Mm. Um, yeah, yes. So apparently, the fact um, Illusion supposedly was a pilot, but wasn't actually involved in the space program. Um, there, there was. I, I've, I've looking into it. I've seen a few conflicting stories. So, frankly, I'm not quite sure what to think. But most people seem to agree that he wasn't. A pilot that indeed had been uh, badly injured in a car accident sometime beforehand. So that could be possibly some sort of mangling of reports of a a, a pilot being injured, turned into a cosmonaut, having something bad happen to him. And given happen. the way that information transferred from the Soviet Union to places in the UK and the US, you can imagine a report getting mangled and arriving on the desk of the editor of the Daily Worker, and them inferring something that didn't actually occur, but you read it in the paper, it must be true. Mm. And also, let's record this particular point in time. Communist newspapers in the Western world were still pretty much pro-Stalin, so anything that came out of the Kremlin, or was thought to be associated associated with the Kremlin, had to be true, and casting doubt upon that meant you cast doubt upon the entire Communist project. Mm. And that... Wasn't cricket interesting? Um, So we have we have uh, cases where um, sort of the the, the hoaxy cases, the other cases that appear to have been people misunderstanding things. Um, Then there were actual cases of accidental deaths during the space program, but were not of the sort that we thought they were. Um, So I mean, officially, but before before we start, I suppose Vladimir Komarov um, is officially the first person to die on a on a space flight um he died in nineteen sixty seven which uh, is, what, six years after gagarin went up so um the, the, this certainly isn't a case of of phantom cosmonauts before the first um successful orbit um but he uh he he successfully got into space uh but then things went wrong on reentry um and he died as the as as his um uh, spacecraft was coming back into the atmosphere. Uh, so, actually, this might have been the one I was uh, I mentioned in the past. Supposedly, again, transmissions were picked up that um, had him uh, crying with rage and quote cursing the people who had put him inside a botched spaceship. Supposedly, the story goes that um, Komarov, who who was who was you know obviously a, a colleague of and a friend of Gagarin's. Um, knew that the vessel they were sending out had some severe uh, severe flaws in it, which could make the flight severely dangerous um, but he went in over Gagarin um and nobody nobody wanted to because you know Soviet Russia at the time nobody wanted to pass these worries back up the chain no, certainly nobody wanted to say to the higher ups actually, I don't think we can go ahead with this launch. Um, and so because no one was willing to get in trouble by denying it, um, the launch went ahead, but uh, their, their fears were realized, everything went wrong, Komarov died. Um, but, but, where well, that was obviously a, a, a fair uh, amount of time after Gagarin's first successful orbit, just a short... While before his orbit, uh, again, back in 1961, in fact, I think it was only a few weeks before Gagarin's successful mission, the body of a severely burned man was brought to a Dr. Vladimir Golikovsky. Um This man was identified as one Sergeyev Ivanov, uh, which turned out to be a pseudonym. Um, it turned out he was actually a man called Valentin Bondarenko, um, who was a cosmonaut in training, and his body, he I... I Think when he arrived at the doctor's place he was already dead. I think if not he died shortly thereafter. He was severely horribly badly burned um, And this was a report that was jumped on that has historically has, has subsequently been jumped on as Look here. We go. Here's someone before Gagarin's launch part of the space crew pro- program died a horrible death um, This must be one of their phantom cosmos. Yes, it sounds like that's a death caused by bad re-entry mm. I d I'm I'm trying not to snigger every time you mention re-entry. I've succeeded so far, but it's just a matter of time <laughs> There we go um, No, no. but supposedly uh, he did not die as the result of a failed launch um, He died during an endurance experience in a low-pressure altitude chamber um, in an institute in Moscow um, the chamber had a high level of oxygen in the air supposedly he um He accidentally started a fire, he was uh, cleaning himself with an alcohol-soaked swab, um, threw it away, it landed on an electric heating plate or something, started a fire, oxygen-rich atmosphere, obviously made it a very bad fire. Also, because it was a low-altitude thing, he was sealed in there quite securely, and in the time it took them to actually unseal the chamber and get him out, um, he was horrifically badly burned and died shortly thereafter. Um, But again, this is something we didn't find out about until the 80s, apparently. Yeah, so even if we don't think there are phantom cosmonauts, there's a lot of cover-ups going on in the Soviet space program mm. at that particular point in time for the sheer fact the Soviets and the Yanks are in a PR war to be the first people into space and the first people to do successful space mission X, Y, and Z. Mm. So may- maybe now it's time to get to our... our um our suspicious radio signals, because all this sort of stuff could lead a person to say, well, it's, you know, uh, covering up the deaths of uh, cosmonauts in their program is the sort of thing Russia would do. It certainly sets a precedent. But when it comes to actual evidence of actual cosmonauts dying before Gagarin's successful mission, uh, the main thing are these radio signals. Now, there's there's one particular one that I've seen highlighted a couple of times, and yet every time it's mentioned, it's never made it clear if it's one of the ones made by the Italian brothers or if it's a separate one instead. But um, on February the 4th, 1961, Gagarin's launch was in April, um, Soviets announced the launch of a Sputnik payload um, that supposedly, uh, in the West, uh, people monitoring radio transmissions listened to what sounded like a human heartbeat uh, moaning and the Russian translated Morse code that ended suddenly at the point at the what do they call it? The the staging point, I think, when the bits of the rocket were supposed to separate. Um, so that was thought, oh, okay, there we go. It's human sound cut off strangely what's gone on there. Um, but a lot of people said, well, that's actually not the, the uh, a dying cosmod isn't actually the only explanation of what this sort of thing could be. Um, some people thought maybe it was a hoax. I mean, that's that's one explanation for a lot of these things. It was just plain a hoax. Um, another thing people have pointed out is that um, Russian did apparently include in their launch, and some of their launches did include pre-recorded broadcasts of human speech or human vital signs to test their communication stuff. Uh, we, we know about one instance where they actually did do that. Um, I forgot to write down the name. It was... Uh, Ivan Ivanovich or something like that. Oh, uh, sounds like a good Russian name. Exa- well, a uh, suspiciously good Russian name because it was the name given to a dummy uh, that was sent up in one of the earlier test launches. So they said John, a John, a John Johnson. Uh, John Johnson, basically. It was it was something like that, Ivan Ivanovich or Sergei Sergeyevich or something like that. Um, and so they sent up this dummy uh, in, in, in um, preparation for sending up humans. Um, and as part of it, they also included recordings of a human being making noises to test that when they sent up a real human, they'd be able to receive back any transitions that they made. So, And also certain beep-beep-beep sounds may well have been related to timing mechanisms mm. in the rocketry, as opposed to, say, being the life support systems. Mm. Um, but so we get to the, the uh, Judica Cordelia brothers, Um, They claimed to be monitoring Russian transmissions from the late 50s and onwards. They, uh, over time, eventually released nine different recordings of what they claimed were Soviet space missions uh, from the 60s, resulting in tragedy. Um, So, as we said, they had um, sort of heartbeats stopping. They had actual people crying or saying that things were going horribly wrong. They supposedly um, captured um, things exploding, things... uh, Reentry going wrong causing people to veer off into space and be lost in space and never, never coming back down um, But people who've analyzed these recordings have have raised a few issues with them um, First of all these supposed cosmonauts they don't use proper Air Force communication protocols um, and these cosmonauts they are members of the uh, Air Force I guess the Russian Air Force was what the space program came out of I assume I mean, that's where it came out yeah, of in the U.S. Yeah. I assume it's the same in so Russia as well. They were, they were definitely Russian military in any case. Um, so they were highly educated, highly trained, um, and yet in many cases we find them not using the proper protocols, so even things down to um, supposedly any transmission should start with the person identifying themselves, and that didn't happen in some cases. In some cases they didn't use um, the correct terminology, and again, a highly trained um Cosmonaut would, would always, you would expect to use the correct terminology. Now, I should point out the counter to this, which was the counter that was mm. in the 14 Times article, was that these initial launches were being controlled from the ground and the people in the capsules themselves were political prisoners. Ah. So that would suddenly explain why they're not using the right protocol. They don't know the right protocol. They've been Coerced into these launches. Mm. Well, there you go. That does that makes it a little more suspect. I mean, I I don't know whether or not to say sending political prisoners into space sounds a little extreme for Russia. I I suppose it kind of doesn't. No, unfortunately, given the kind of purges that Stalin and also Stalin's successors engaged in, there were a lot of political prisoners being locked up in various locations, many of whom no one even knows what actually happened to them. Some of them disappearing into space is not beyond the realms of possibility. Mm. I mean, admittedly, when I mention this to Russian colleagues, they go, no, no, we know a lot about what happened to political prisoners. They are often kept in prison because the whole point of a political prisoner and keeping them alive is it gives you leverage over their family. And so you need to keep your political prisoners alive because they're more useful to you alive than dead. But at the same time, Stalin also didn't make a lot of people just die. He sure did, yes. Um, now, another point against these um, these these supposed transmissions was the, the talk of, um, of uh, launches going wrong and the people veering off into space and being lost forever. Supposedly, that wasn't possible. At the time that 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 in the early sixties the Russians just didn't have the capability of seen, of launching something hard hard enough and far enough and fast enough that it could have even got out of uh, got into outer space even if things went wrong Yes if you've ever played Ker- Ker- Kerbal space Program, which is basically a sandbox game of sending rockets into space it's actually quite difficult to get your rocket past the Earth or the moon's gravity failed. And in the 60s, that was really, really difficult, given the kind of fuel that was being used at the time. You just weren't getting the right weight to thrust ratio. Mm. Uh, thrust re-entry... So it's, it's, it's fairly clear that uh, the whole rocketry thing was invented by... Well, it was Elster Crowley in his lot, wasn't it? Well, yeah, Jack, yeah, yeah. Jack yeah. Parsons, That's one it. of Elster Crowley's devotees, who was heavily into sex magics was often penetrating the atmosphere with his dildo-shaped rockets. There's no denying the space program was founded by horny men. Anyway, um, so we have we have uh, hoaxes that we don't have time to go into, but trust me, they exist. We have misunderstandings. We have radio transmission evidence that is at best dodgy. I I think when it, as as we talked about. With the moon landings and as we talked about before, what possibly the most persuasive thing that it comes down to is if these things really happened, how come, given the the, the stakes of this propaganda war, how come nobody cottoned on to it and, and nobody publicised them? Was Russia's secrecy just that good? Yes and no. Mm. I mean... Russia was very good at controlling certain parts of the information. Russia was actually particularly good at ensuring that journalists who worked in, say, their Moscow bureaus and and the like, if they weren't initially friendly towards Russia when they arrived, they were friendly towards Russia by the time they left. And we see this today with North Korea. Journalists who get invited to North Korea to see what North Korea is like on the ground do tend to see a slightly different North Korea than escapees from North Korea actually claim. Mm -hmm. And that's a traditional thing in autocratic political systems. You want to control the flow of information, so you want to make sure that the obvious leaks, journalists and the like, are going to be the ones who get the best possible version of your culture. That being said, things did escape from the Iron Curtain, and it is interesting that the Phantom Cosmonaut thesis continues to be a conspiracy theory with very shaky evidence, as opposed to a clear-cut case of a cover-up. Yes, I mean... Um, there are there are certain things it hasn't been disproved entirely, but we certainly haven't seen any anything like a slam dunk, any any totally conclusive proof that these phantom cosmonauts existed. Indeed, and now I have great regret because mm. now I'm thinking about it. What I should have done was rehearse singing Phantom of the Cosmodrome. I, what? And, and and Andrew Lloyd Webber Days, Phantom of the Opera bit. Phantom of the calls Not sure I see that working, to be honest, the old chorus. Still, with enough work, who knows what could have been. And we'll never know now. Mm. Now, I, do, know. I have one bit left here in the notes, which I, I believe uh, you have added, which is my Soviet space dog's <laughs> story. <Yes. laughs> could you fill in a little detail on that, please? In Culver City, in LA, there was a place called the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And the Museum of Jurassic Technology, if you're ever in Culver City, is well worth going to. It's actually much better than going to the Sony Studio Tour, which I went to before I went to the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Now, the Museum of Jurassic Technology is a museum where half the exhibits are true, or at least based upon real things, and half the exhibits are fictional or largely fabricated. And the whole point of the museum is there are no signs to tell you which is which. You're strongly told not to use cell phones and the like, so you can't just go around trying to look things up. And on the top floor of the museum, there is a room which has eight or nine oil paintings of the dogs the Soviets sent up into space. So Barker, Leica, and the like. And you go into that room... And you look at these oil paintings, and they're quite big oil paintings, they're, sta- you know, they're fairly standard portrait size oil paintings of dogs. And you're going, I don't know whether this is real or not. I mean, it's actually quite conceivable in the Soviet space program that they would have commissioned portraits of these brave heroes of the revolution who gave up their lives to test rocketry out also quite possible that someone has gone wouldn't have been great if the Soviets had made oil paintings, I'll just mock them up for this museum. Now you, it's, I have never found any evidence that they're fake, and indeed a lot of stuff disappeared from Russia after perestroika, and there's no records of it, so it's quite possible these are authentic oil paintings from the period, and if they are, not they're oil paintings, and they're big oil paintings, and oil paintings are expensive to create, elaborate to make, and take a long time to cure. So if they're fakes, they are incredibly elaborate fakes. And it just speaks to the mystery around the Soviet space program, that you can walk into a room, see nine portraits of dogs, and go, this could be real. It mm. really, really could. So that is my Soviet space dog story. There you go, Soviet space dogs. It needs, I was going to say there should be a movie about that. There's definitely been a movie about space dogs. The um, the, the buddies. I suppose. Yeah, I'm I'm actually trying mm. trying to remember more de- more details about it. I'm not looking at you condemningly. I'm looking at you to refresh my no, yes, aged no, memory. I, I I haven't seen it either, but I do have young children. Uh, so remember the remember ear bud. I and do remember, was the, 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 that, dog, the basketball the dog. The dog plays basketball movie. So then there were a bunch of other Bud movies, and then that spawned the Buddies movies, which were the puppies of this dog. And so they go off and get on adventures, and by this stage... Um, CGI technology had moved on to the point where the dogs can now talk and they can like CGI their mouths, so it looks like their mouths are moving and stuff like that. And they well, I like to think it's going to be more like Talos the Mummy where they CGI guts onto poor Christopher Lee oh, um, in the worst way possible. So bad, um, but yes, so, so there's these these charming talking puppies, and, and of course, obviously, they eventually go into space. I really hope Christopher but, um, Lee ne- never saw that film because that. Much. That that CGI scene of his guts is is really pre Viz CGI. Mm. we we'll we'll fix it up in the oh, uh we kinda of forgot to fix that. But that entire film feels as if they never actually finished I think it. if you wanted to test whether or not Christopher Lee has seen it, did any of the directors or special effects people uh, die mysteriously when they were stabbed through the lungs with a stiletto by a person who's, who melted into the night and was never and seen And was also yes. six foot eight. And was also six foot eight, yes. So if, if that has happened, then yes, Christopher Lee has seen that film. If it hasn't, he probably didn't. And he's dead now, so he probably never will. Well, he's quote-unquote dead. It's true. I don't know that Christopher Lee actually can die. No, Um, no, he's just waiting until the second coming of Peter Cushing, and then it's going to be vampire and vampire hunter all over again. Anyway... Uh, The fact that we're rabbiting on about popular culture is generally the sign that the the main part of this episode has come to an end. But that's not the end of the episode, because now we go straight to the news! The news. Breaking, breaking conspiracy theories in the news. News! It's everywhere! Conspiracies abound, and we're here to report on them. Indeed, I've been looking over Reddit recently, and here are some of the top headlines from our conspiracy and our conspiracy theories. Elon Musk was created by the Large Hadron Collider. Schizophrenia is the result of time travellers tinkering with the timeline. 9-11 occurred to commemorate the breaking of the ground for the Pentagon 60 years earlier. And Christine Blasey-Ford created false memories of the sexual assault using her own research. Really? (sighs) Meanwhile, the case of the murder of Seth Rich continues unabated. Seth Rich, you'll recall, was the former Democratic National Committee staffer who was murdered back in 2016. While authorities concluded his death was the result of an attempted mugging that turned into a struggle, which turned into a shooting, Right-wing conspiracy theorists started trying to tie him to the embarrassing leak of DNC emails from earlier in the year, suggesting his murder was some form of retribution. Now these theories gained traction, indeed. The Washington Times published an article which included the claim that, quote, It is well known in intelligence circles that Seth Rich and his brother Aaron Rich downloaded the DNC emails and was paid by WikiLeaks for that information. Though it offered no proof of this claim. A claim that turned out to be, what's the word? Not, not true The the other- FALSE! 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 That's the one. American intelligence agencies believe that Russia was behind the email theft um, and claims that Rich's laptop was taken by the FBI and found to have the stolen emails on it have been denied by the police Aaron Rich, understandably unhappy at being named as a criminal so soon after the loss of his brother, filed a defamation lawsuit against the Times, amongst other outlets. And this week the paper settled with the living Mr. Rich, removing all traces of the offending article from its website, and publishing a retraction and apology. Mm. This hasn't killed the conspiracy theories, though, Um, although he settled with the times. Rich's lawsuit named other conspiracy theorists against whom he is still pursuing legal action. And now for your weekly dose of the Supreme Court nomination saga. Which might be over by the time you listen to this podcast. Yes, everything we are about to say might be relevant in just a few hours' time. In news which really is both conspiratorial and evidence of perjury, it seems very likely that Scoter's nominee Brett Kavanaugh knew of at least one sexual assault allegation at least a week before the hearings and set in motion plans to downplay or dismiss the allegation, whilst denying at the hearings themselves any knowledge of any such a claim against him. According to a series of text messages between two friends of Kavanagh, Yale classmate Kerry Burcham and Karen Yarosavage, or Yarosavage, I don't know, indicate that Kavanagh was aware of Deborah Ramirez's accusation before it was published. The texts also indicate that Kavanagh was friendlier with Ramirez than he has claimed, and that Ramirez was uncomfortable around Kavanagh when they were both at a wedding nearly a decade ago. Now, this is important because not only does this show collusion between parties to control the narrative of the story, in this case a claim of sexual assault against a Supreme Court Justice nominee, Kavanaugh said to the jury committee, under oath, that the first time he'd heard of the accusation was in a New Yorker story, and yet, these messages indicate he likely knew ahead of time, and thus committed perjury. This is not the only perjury Kavanaugh has committed during the hearings, as has been chronicled extensively in various US publications. Indeed, even prominent conservatives have come to agree that Kavanaugh has told some porkies during the hearings, but apparently this is okay, as he's stressed by what is going on, and so he's allowed some leeway. Mm. These same conservative voices did not extend the same courtesy to one, uh, Hillary Clinton, Mm. when she was grilled over the whole deleted email saga. That's a fun fact. Isn't it just? But wait, there's more. You see, given this might be the last week we talk about Kavanaugh as a Supreme Court Justice nominee, I thought we should also talk about the death of Vince Foster. But we did that the week before last. Ah, but two weeks ago, we talked about Kavanaugh's role in promoting the ludicrous theory that Foster had been murdered. This week we're going to talk about how Kavanaugh promoted the ludicrous theory Foster committed suicide. Okay... Yes, we are now at the point that Kavanaugh has been accused of peddling conspiracy theories about the death of Vince Foster from both sides. Earlier this week, Ambrose Evans-Pritchard penned an article in which he detailed his dealings with with Kavanaugh during the Whitewater investigation. This is the Ambrose Evans-Pritchard who was the Telegraph's Washington correspondent? The very same. During the reopened investigation into Foster's death, Evans-Pritchard discovered an eyewitness to the crime scene who had never been questioned by Ken Starr's team. This witness had given a statement to the FBI at the time of Foster's death, but also claimed that the version of the statement the FBI wrote up was not what they had seen. They had seen evidence of a gunshot in the side of Foster's neck, which contradicted the official account of the crime scene. Curiouser and curiouser. The witness was subpoenaed to the grand jury, whereupon he was aggressively questioned by Kavanaugh in a manner which Evans Pritchard calls character assassination, as if Kavanaugh did not want any evidence which contradicted the official story coming out. Evans Pritchard says Kavanaugh decided to act in a partisan way, rather than support the truth coming out, and this makes him unfit for office. So Kavanaugh promoted conspiracy theories about Foster's murder, but then covered up evidence Foster was actually murdered? If both sets of stories are true, then that is the long and short of it. How delightfully... confusing. Isn't it just? And now, some local news. Right-wing faux-union, the taxpayers' union, have been found to use false identities in order to request official information via official information access requests. Now, what the taxpayers' union has done is in no way illegal. Turns out that there is no requirement that you request information under your own name. However, it has been branded suspicious and unseemly, um, and reflects badly on the taxpayers' union and its lead unionist, I guess, Jordan Mm -hmm. Williams, who was suspected of dirty politicking earlier this year when one Raquel Ray registered a website in favour of MP Judith Collins becoming the leader of the National Party. When people sought to find out who Raquel Way was, the only information they could find was that Ray had an IP address associated with the taxpayers' union, and Ray's account just happened to use the same recovery email account as Williams. Now, Williams denied all knowledge uh, and intimated that he had been hacked by forces who were out to get him. At the time, virtually no one believed him, um, and this seems like evidence that said disbelief was warranted. This counts as a scandal in Aotearoa New Zealand, you know. Someone registering a website for no seeming reward, under a pseudonym, all in order to promote an MP becoming leader of a political party. Still, it's one of those little conspiracies. Evan Williams has denied the probable fact that he used a pseudonym to advance the cause of his friend, Judith Collins. Which makes you wonder, what else might be going on? Fun fact, most people refer to the taxpayers' union as the taxpayers' Onion because no one really takes them seriously. And talking about taking things seriously, in our patron bonus content, we discuss another Kavanaugh story involving alcohol and mistaken identity, we once again talk soft power in China, and puzzle over an anti-vax billboard which had a short life outside a hospital in Auckland. All that, and Josh chiding me on having not yet watched the first episode of season three of The Good Place coming up. for patrons. Otherwise, it's time to say goodnight, sweetheart. Till we meet tomorrow. No, the other version. Uh, good, good night, sweetheart. Good night. Okay. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you, but I really must say... Good night, sweetheart. Good night. You've been listening to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. It is written, researched, and performed by Josh Addison, aka Monkey Fluids, and MRX Dentith, aka Conspiracism, on Twitter. This podcast is available where all good podcasts can be found, as well as iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. It can also be watched on YouTube. Just search for the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, or, if you happen to be technophobic, consult the Auguries. You can support the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy via our Patreon page, as listed in the podcast description, or just by searching for us on Patreon. You can also support us via the Podbean patronage system, if that is more your style. You do you. If you want to get in contact with us, why not email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. And remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.